Well, thank you, Tom, for leading us in prayer. Good morning, Calvary Church, and good morning to all of those who are watching us online this morning. We're glad you're here to join us. We are continuing in our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning, and we're actually going to be talking about Christian ethics today and in two particular areas of ethics as Christians. Now, one of the greatest gifts to the church throughout the last, de- last decades has been a man named John R.W. Stott, great leader of the church and missionary and theologian and pastor. And he made this observation um, many years ago about Christian ethics. He says this, one of the greatest weaknesses of contemporary Christianity is our comparative neglect of Christian ethics in both our teaching and our practice. In consequence, we become known rather as a people who preach the gospel rather than those who live it and adorn it. That's a really sad comment. That was made many, many years ago. Hopefully, it's a better situation today than it was then. But Christian ethics is a very, very large topic. Uh, it's an enormous discipline. It has many sub-subjects to it and sub-disciplines that you can talk about. But this morning, I want to focus mainly on the core of Christian ethics and on the personal side of ethics. So Christian ethics include specific practices, they include a larger perspective of what it means really to obey the Bible. So in two words, we might just simply sum it up this way and say Christian ethics is about pleasing God. That's what it's about. It's about pleasing God. And if we're concerned about ethics, we will ask these questions. We'll ask questions like this, very simple. How might I please God? How might I please God more? How might our church be more pleasing to God? These are really good questions to be asking in prayer as you pray for yourself, you pray for others, you pray even for this church. Now, let's go back to the Thessalonian church for a moment here. We're continuing in our series. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. But this church was full of new Christians, brand new Christians, at most three months down the road in their walk with the Lord. And they were at the very beginning of their development, but they were a church that was eager to please God. And it's that disposition that put them on the fast track to Christian maturity so that they would be pushed out way in front by the Apostle Paul as a model church. A model church then in the time of the writing and a model church even for us today. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the salvation you've given to us in Christ, and we pray that you would continue to do your work within us by the power of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the very image of our Savior. And this is our great desire. And we ask this morning, too, that you would stir up within us a desire that may have been, may have been lying dormant for a while, a desire to please you, to please you in all things. And we ask this morning that you would guide us as we study your holy word. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. So, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12 this morning. So let me read it to you, and as I read it, you can be praying that the Lord will bless us all. So finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So God is encouraging us through the Apostle Paul this morning to keep advancing in our walk with God, submitting ourselves constantly to our Lord Jesus Christ, and then ever more increasing in our sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can see the structure in our passage. It's very simple this morning. After the Apostle Paul introduces the main concept, which is excel still more. Excel still more in verses 1 and 2. Excel still more in pleasing God. Then we see two topics that are brought up. In verses 3 through 8, he's admonishing them to excel still more in sexual purity. And he's encouraging them to excel still more in brotherly love. As you can imagine, these are very important topics for new believers to cover. They're also very new, very important topics for mature believers to cover. So I assume the Calvary Evangelical Free Church is doing pretty well in Christian ethics. As generally, we're way beyond the Thessalonians. We're mature in Christ. And yet we're called, just as they were, to excel still more. It's true that if we're actually doing well, then we will respond positively to the encouragement to excel still more because we want to excel still more. In fact, it's a lack of desire to excel in the way we live our lives that signifies we're really not doing that well. So at this point in the letter to the Thessalonians, we see a, a significant shift to some of the issues that are at hand uh, for the church. In other words, Paul is now addressing, if you will, discipleship deficiencies, things that need to be addressed. They were likely reported to him by Timothy when he came back. Remember, in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy came back uh, to Paul in Corinth and reported how they were doing, and probably that he had noticed some of these things in their initial visit back that's recorded in Acts 17 when he was there, that they really did need to keep advancing in their walk with God and not stay where they are. They needed to submit even more so to Jesus, and they needed to excel in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the principle here in verses 1 to 2, excelling still more in pleasing God. It's the most basic drive in the Christian life. Let me read it again to you. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So there are many translations of this very first word in here, finally, and if we read that and we infer a conclusion, then we look like this is a very long conclusion. So it's very long. So most likely a better translation is just, as for the rest of the things that are concerned. In other words, this is really important now. This just isn't a conclusion and just let's throw in some things about ethics. He's talking very specifically to them about two areas that they need to excel still more in. If you remember chapters 1 to 3, chapter 1 recounts how they turned to God from idols. 
from worshiping a false god to worshiping the true God, Jesus Christ, and, and then how they excelled immediately in faith and love and hope. Chapters 1 to 2 recounted how they were so eager with their newfound faith that they just went all over Macedonia telling people about Jesus. Chapters 1 to 3 talks about how their experience with the Word of God was extremely powerful. It was working in their lives so quickly. And of course, chapters 1 to 3 talk about this unique relationship, this love between the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and the whole team and the church in Thessalonica and how they really, truly love one another in Jesus. So in light of all of this, the Thessalonians should excel still more in the instructions that they had already received. You see, originally, Paul taught them about that in Acts 17. And then Timothy just got back from a trip. When he went up to visit them, he told them about these things. And so now, the Apostle Paul and his team are going to tell them again about these things and what they've already learned. In fact, you'll see this phrase, as we told you, or like, as you already know from us, repeated four times in our passage this morning. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, verse 11. So he's really reminding them of something he's already taught them repeatedly. And, and notice also how he, it says he asks and he urges them toward this uh, increasing excellence in their walk with the Lord. They're pleasing God. And so he addresses them right away as brothers and sisters in the Lord because he himself knows the struggles. I mean, in one sense, all of us as Christians, we're all in the same situation. We're all struggling against the flesh, struggling against the world's pressures, struggling against the, the devil himself as he seeks to, to destroy our lives. Paul also addresses them as a father. Back in chapter 2, he says that, I will strongly encourage and exhort you. So he's doing that as well. He also asks them as if he's their friend. And he pleads with them, urges them from his position as an apostle. So the apostle Paul has all these types of relationships with these people. And he wants to encourage them that they must walk. Your translations say, may say something, how you ought to live. It's literally how you ought to walk. And Jesus Christ himself said about himself in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, speaking of God, his Father. The Apostle Paul will describe the Christian's driving ambition in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where he says, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. This is his goal. The Christian life is described as a walk, literally here, because the Christian's going somewhere. It's a purposeful metaphor. We have this destination of, of a heavenly, eternal glory with our Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints of all the ages. Your life has a purpose in Christ. And so we're supposed to keep making progress on the journey. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes this concerning his own walk. He says, Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many of us are, as are mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different Attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. You know, it's important to see that Paul acknowledges their progress, as you've been doing. 
um, before he actually admonishes them. He encourages them to even look at how far they've come, even in just a matter of months. You know, it's good to do that, to look back occasionally on your life, see how far you've come, or rather how far God has brought you uh, in your walk with Him. Have you ever done that in prayer? Look back on your life and say, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I'm not like I used to be. In fact, God spared the world by changing my life. It could, I could have inflicted so much pain on people. It's amazing to see what God has done with our lives. But don't rest here and think, oh, that's good enough or that's great. But the goal isn't that we just measure ourselves against our own standards or against each other, but against God's absolute standard. And then he encourages us to excel still more. There's more that we can do to please the Lord. So here's the principle. And, and we know this principle in our normal lives anyway. So for example, you know, athletes never rest content with their current performance level. They're always seeking to be better. It doesn't matter what their latest victory is, they have to be better. We see it also in our, the realms of our jobs, where we spend a lot of time and a lot of money to make ourselves more marketable in the world so that we can be positioned for a promotion. We also see this as parents, and that we want to become better and better parents, and we know there's always room for improvement, and so we read things and we get advice from people. We're always seeking to excel still more. Even those of us who have <clears throat> some really fun hobbies, we spend a lot of time gaining more knowledge about it, uh, finding new opportunities and new joys. Uh, how much energy are we putting into excelling and pleasing God in our daily lives? You know, it's a challenging call to excel still more, but it's so rewarding and satisfying when you start then to see that you're making progress in pleasing God. So keep advancing in your walk with God. The Apostle Paul is calling us all to keep submitting to Jesus. Keep increasing in your sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the introduction, and it applies to every single area of our life. But he's applying it to two very specific areas in regard to the Thessalonian church. There are two very specific and important areas for us as well. So the main area that he brings up is to let us excel still more in sexual purity. And so we read this then in verses 3 to 8 that we're to abstain from all sexual immorality. So verse 3 begins, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Or some translations say, your holiness. That's God's will for your life. That's God's will. And then he says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to you. So, again, just at the very beginning, holiness is God's will for our life. I mean, God's will for our life is a large topic. Holiness is a large topic. Here he's bringing it down to one very specific matter, and that is sexual morality and sexual immorality. You know, perhaps Timothy had reported uh, to Paul on some of these pressures on how difficult it was for the church. Maybe there were some weaker Christians that were failing and needed some encouragement. 
And so Paul writes these instructions, and the, the word for sexual immorality here is a very general word in Greek, porneia. It's a word for all types of sinful sexual behavior that are not sanctioned by God. That's the basic idea. If God doesn't sanction them, then they're immoral. They're against his law. And so perhaps, you know, the most common types in mind would have been fornication, which is just simply a fancy word for premarital sex. Or maybe it's adultery that was in mind, extramarital sex. It would certainly have included a lot of the things that were going on at the time, prostitution, homosexuality, incest, bestiality. I mean, fallen humanity really comes up with a great list of things here. I mean, it's like there's no end to it. So the Greco-Roman world promoted these things and allowed this kind of sexual morality. In fact, this is a fun fact for you this morning. The two cities known for sexual morality were Corinth, where Paul is when he's writing this, and then guess what city two was? Thessalonica. Yeah, so this is very important. So one scholar, F.F. Bruce, summarized the situation for the typical man, typical male at this time, and we'll just pick on men for a moment. I mean, women have their problems too, but we'll, we'll leave them out of this. So the typical man at the time, F.F. Bruce said, would have a mistress for his intellectual companionship as well as other pleasures. A concubine would be available to him through the institution of slavery. Many harlots would be available to choose from for casual gratification. And of course, last but least, right, not least, his wife for household management and mothering of his children and raising up of his heirs. Now, even this description that I just gave you, it's too refined of a description to describe life in this time and place of the world. But hey, we're in church this morning. So I can't really tell you what it was really like. But there's plenty out there you can read about how immoral world this life was in this world at this time. So the cultural attitude and practices regarding sexuality would have been a constant harassment to the church, a constant temptation facing people, just like it is for us today. You know, we decry our society's decadence, especially since... You know, some of you can remember the sexual revolution back in the 60s and 70s. But even today, you know, recent years, the, the pushing of the boundaries even farther, it seems, and the, the new availability of pornography and the new ways people want to approach sex to distort God's good design for all these empty promises that they think are going to be fulfilling. But, you know, there are a lot worse places in the United States than West Essex County. There are a lot worse places to be a church, for example, in Asia, where it's in your face like you wouldn't believe. But the Apostle Paul is saying that each Christian here needs to learn to control himself and, and to live a godly life. And in other words, you know, if you think about what was going on at their time, what's going on in other parts of our world that's way worse than where we live, well, it should be a lot easier for us then. It should be easier for us to fight the good fight and, uh, and, to, and to fulfill our new life in Christ. So we can be encouraged by that. But the Apostle Paul is saying we need to be careful and controlled, rightly channeling our sexual energies in holiness and honor. And holiness is in reference to God. That is in a godly way, in the way God designed it. And in honor means in ways that honors other people, especially one's spouse. You know, although men are being primarily addressed here, the 
obviously the application is in no way limited to men only because we know that women can live just as immoral lives as men do. You know, I've met plenty of them, and I'm sure you've met plenty of them too. But Christian sexual behavior is in sharp contrast to the typical sexual behavior of the heathen, the Gentiles, the world. You see, all societies of all time, it has always been this way. It always will be this way. The world we live in has a completely different set of values and motivations and drives. Sexual ethics in a community are never going to match the sexual ethics in the Bible, ever. You will never find that. And so get used to it. And notice how he calls them out Gentiles here, because he's saying, well, at least the Jews have Moses and they would keep the sexual ethics. But he's using Gentiles to refer to all the heathen in the world. And notice the most important description of them is to those who don't know God. They don't know God. And if you don't know God, then you don't know what pleases God. And if you don't know God, then you don't even care about pleasing Him. Knowing God makes all the difference. You see, the heathen do. Unbelievers do what they do because they don't know God. And Christians do what they do because they do know God. So this is all in 1 John. Later in your Bible, you can read it. It's all there, this principle. And then in this area of sexuality, if a person doesn't know God, I mean, think about where the boundaries are going to be able to come from. What would be the boundaries? I mean, they're only going to be as good as what their contemporary society allows for, what their personal preferences are, or what the circumstances provide someone. Without the Holy Spirit living within people, they're going to be guided and mastered and overpowered by their lusts. And this is due to their sin and part of God's judgment for rejecting him and his revelation that's so clear, even in nature, regarding sexuality. In Romans chapter 1, it's written, God will give them over to the lusts of their hearts and impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them for the exchange of the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, as the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans, and you can read this one on your own as well, I mean, he's telling you the story of the world. This is the story of the world. And then there's more in Romans chapter 2, and then you read into Romans 3, and there's freedom that comes from the world and from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what chapter 3 is about. And you read about there's actually forgiveness for this that there's actually freedom that comes with the Holy Spirit indwelling your life. And by faith in Christ, you become a new person with new desires, with new affections, with new pursuits. And you know then, as you continue to read Romans in chapter 8 even, you learn how to fight the good fight in chapter 7 and 8. Now verse 6 brings up another issue involved in sexual immorality, and that's its effect upon others besides the two that might be involved. I mean, even the two that might be involved are often hurt more than they realize or than they're willing to admit at the time. But sexual immorality, whatever the form, it eats at the soul and it morphs the mind. That's what happens. You know, even including, you know, addictive uses of pornography, right? That'll eat at your soul. It'll morph your mind. But not only is this transgression against God's law, and transgress means simply to cross the line, not only is it a crossing of the line that God has set, but it's an exploitation of one's brother. 
of somebody else. Now, it's obviously true in the case of adultery, but it's also true in the case of possessing someone's future wife. And this isn't even to mention the obvious exploitation, especially in this culture, in this time, of women that's going on, and the exploitation of children. In fact, it is way worse than you can think or imagine. And sexuality is not just a personal issue. It's an issue that affects the whole community. Again, this is the story of the world. Now, another reason to comply with what the Apostle is teaching us in verse 6 is that the Lord Jesus is an avenger of these things. He's an avenger of God's righteousness, and he's an avenger of those who are being exploited. And he will avenge. In fact, the Apostle Paul says he taught taught them this before. Now, God has a lot of options available to him, almost unlimited. And he can do whatever he wants in due course in a variety of ways letting natural consequences take their course and special consequences the way he wants to intervene, but of course there will always be the final consequences. So ignoring the instruction is to one's own peril. Hopefully none of you here are doing this today. But the Lord Christ abhors sexual transgression against the law of God. He abhors the sexual exploitation of his people that he created in his own image. Hebrews 13.4 says very clearly what the standard is. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Very simple. Well, here's another reason to comply in verse 7. You can reread this one. It says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The calling of God upon us as Christians is our sanctification. It's into this realm of living that he called us. It's a great joy to be living free of that. In Ephesians chapter 1, 4, it says, he, speaking of the Father, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Later on in Ephesians chapter 5, do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And then earlier in this letter itself, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says that you may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here's another reason to comply uh, with biblical Christian ethics is to live for our calling in Christ and who he's called us to be. The final reason to comply with abstaining from sexual morality is given in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, these standards are God-given, and they're testified to by the Holy Spirit within each Christian. In other words, every believer knows deep down in his or her heart what is true and what is right, and whether they're guilty, even if they're confused and struggling with the currently, current worldly views that just seem so promising or enticing or loving. God the Father gives His Holy Spirit to produce holiness in His people. The present tense is used here, He gives His Holy Spirit to emphasize then the reality and the severity when you commit a transgression. And that is, it's a direct working against the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit produces 
holiness. That's his ministry. That's his job in our life. And so the apostle says, if somebody rejects all of this or they're indifferent to what I just said, you're not just rejecting this guy named Paul or other people, Christians' ideas, but you're rejecting God himself. See, true believers pursue sexual purity and false ones sit around discussing it, rationalizing it, and disobeying it. You see, the Christian standard divine norm is very simple, obvious, straightforward. Sex is for marriage. And it's to be fully enjoyed in marriage. In fact, one of my favorite sermon series is on the Song of Songs. So sometime we'll get to that. But it's to be fully enjoyed in the context of marriage. God created humanity and he created sexuality. So as the creator, he defines what's good. He defines what's beautiful. He defines what's right. And the sinfulness of humanity, our fallenness, has corrupted this extremely powerful and beautiful aspect of our life. But Christ came to redeem us, and we praise God for that, that he would redeem us out of sexual immorality. He's likely rescued many of us. And there's hope if you want rescuing. He can and will purify your life. New Christians need simple, straightforward, compassionate teaching on sexual morality like this text. Seems to be what the Apostle Paul believes, as he's telling this church, so young. You know, why not? Because they would often be living in immorality. I mean, that's where they came from. That's who they would be. And even in our day, it's not uncommon, for example, to, after someone comes to Christ, you find out that they've been living a sexually immoral life. They've been experimenting with things that are out, out there for today to experiment with. But, you know, the Holy Spirit starts to work really fast in people once they come to Christ, and we need to be patient and see God do his work in them. So let's excel still more in sexual purity. It's always been a countercultural distinguishing mark of a Christian. Christian sexual ethics are unique in this regard. They never have been compatible with any worldly society in the history of the world. And they will never be compatible. So be prepared. Just FYI. Later, in another letter, the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You know, most of us aren't actively involved, I would guess, in these sexual sins that are under discussion in this passage. Although, Surely, many, many fight the daily battle for our thought lives. In fact, I would argue probably all of us do because our culture assaults us every day. And, you know, there are specific temptations that the evil one's going to bring our way. So keep fighting. Keep fighting valiantly until you get to heaven and move forward and please God. You know, we can all learn more sexual self-control and the proper ordering of our affections. We can all learn to please God in our sexuality and honor our husband or our wife more. We can all learn to enjoy God's gift as he intends it. And by enjoying his gift, we enjoy him for all that he's provided for us. And if you're trapped, you can repent and come to Jesus Christ. He will forgive you. He will heal you. And he will restore your life. You know, much of this is spoken to people in the situation of marriage so often, 
But I mentioned, you know, I used John Stott's quote at the beginning of the sermon this morning on purpose. Because I don't know how many of you know, I mean, John Stott was a single man his entire life. And he lived to be 90 years old. I mean, this year he would have been 100. He was a vibrant, godly man up until the end. Was very faithful in doing missions around the world and in teaching. He lived his whole life in singleness. And his commentary on this passage is fascinating and how he writes it. This is what he says. He says, those of us who are single and therefore lack the God-given context for sexual love, what about us? We too must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem, as God's good purpose both for us and for society. We will not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided that we submit to it. It is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected, both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Multitudes of Christians, Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness, loneliness accompanied sometimes by acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people. It's a wonderful commentary, and there's so many good Christian resources available out there to help us live well our life in this area. So keep advancing in your walk with God, especially in the area of sexual purity, and submit to Jesus Christ and to the Scriptures and what they teach, and find yourself being sanctified by the Holy Spirit as the years go by. Well, the main area, too, is excelling still more in brotherly love in verses 9 to 12. Now, the apostle has something very specific in mind regarding brotherly love. And so in verses 9 to 10, he's talking about brotherly love in meeting other people's needs. But then the point he's really concerned about comes up in verses 11 and 12, and that is you express brotherly love by meeting your own needs. You express brotherly love by meeting the needs of other people, verses 9 and 10, but you also express brotherly love by being responsible for your own life. Verses 11 and 12. So let's read 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to excel. So another topic of Timothy's report, probably that came back to the apostle, was their love for one another in the church. You know, now they're members of a new community, these new believers in Thessalonica. Their church is their new family. Many of them probably were rejected out of their natural families because they put their faith in Jesus Christ, don't worship the family idols anymore. And they profess this allegiance to Jesus Christ that is above all things. Perhaps you know the similar pain of being rejected by your family when you put your allegiance in Christ, maybe especially once you get baptized. But you also know the joy of being part of a larger church family. It's your new family. It goes deeper and beyond blood family. Now, God is our Father, and we are all truly brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and eternally so. In fact, this family-like love amongst Christians is just a natural spiritual quality. It's something that if you've, uh, if you've traveled at all, even in the United States, you go to another church, and all of a sudden you feel like you're with family, with people who love Jesus Christ. Or you travel overseas and you meet Christians from different cultures who worship the Lord Jesus Christ in truth 
And it's like you've known them your whole life because you have the same Holy Spirit indwelling you and teaching you to live that way, and your love for Jesus is the same. So Christians don't really need instruction. That's why the Apostle Paul says this. Although we could give a lot of instruction, he could. He could have quoted a lot of Old Testament passages or even things Jesus said. I mean, we know the verses. He could have, but the Holy Spirit himself teaches this. He grows this in his church. And Paul is now just reminding them of and us of this. In fact, the proof of their love for one another is the fact that they've spread the gospel and started new churches throughout the area of Macedonia. And it was most likely expressed in the fact, too, that, that they showed compassion for those that were suffering. And financial relief was, was part of their plan in, in sharing the gospel, it accompanied the work they were doing. In fact, later on we read that the church in Thessalonica here was eager to contribute to a relief fund that the Apostle Paul was taking back to Jerusalem on one of his journeys. And they were excited to be a part of that. Now, verse 10 takes us back to verse 1 with the words, excel still more and more. You remember that from the very beginning? That's why we know this is a unit of thought here. More brotherly love is actually possible, he's saying, just as more sexual purity is always possible. And the area that Paul, the apostle has specifically in mind is brotherly love in meeting your own needs, verses 11 12. This is one way you can love your brother or sister. It says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may, again, the word is walk literally here, not live. So again, it takes us back to the beginning. It's the same topic of discussion that he's bringing up here, that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the topic of brotherly love is being addressed here to people that are undisciplined in the church, irresponsible, idle, slothful, and so one aspect of really loving your brother is to take responsibility for yourself. Don't become a church parasite. It's unloving and disunifying not to work to do enough to support your family. To always put yourself in a position of perpetual neediness. Now, it's really important to realize that he's not chastising the truly needy among us. He's not chastising people for being needy. If that's the situation you're in, maybe the person is disabled, maybe they're in a situation of chronic poverty, maybe they're suffering, maybe there's some tragic situation that came upon them, especially you think about 2020 and how that really hurt a lot of people financially and they are in need. So of course we help people in need. That's what the church does so often and we have compassion on those people. And in fact, this is a good point to point out that we have a benevolence fund here at this church and that is specifically collected and people in the church give to it to help those among us who are suffering, who are going through struggles and hard times. And so if that's you, don't, don't be embarrassed. Go talk to one of our deacons about that, or deaconesses. Or maybe you know somebody or a family who's suffering in our church. Go talk to Jerry Capazzi about it. You know, he oversees that fund. And that's there for these kinds of situations. But the apostle's talking about a bigger problem that is quite advanced already in this church of Thessalonica irresponsibility. In fact, it's so important that he'll write a follow-up letter not long after the first letter, and, uh, and he, he'll talk about it. So if you glance over to 2 Thessalonians for a moment, starting in chapter 3, verse 6, you, you can read about how the situation is pretty serious. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who lives an irresponsible life. 
and not according to the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. For, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, some associate this situation of what's going on in Thessalonica because we don't know a whole lot more than what we just read about it. So some people, some scholars think that this has to do with some type of uh, an eschatological fervor among the Thessalonians. In other words, they're so, eschatology refers to the end times, okay? So that somehow they're so agitated that Jesus Christ is coming soon that they decide there's no reason to even hold down a job anymore. And so they have nothing else to do but meddle in other people's lives. And eventually, of course, you run out of money. And then you become needy. And they're still waiting on Jesus because he hasn't come back yet. So that's possible. There's, this connection is never made explicit in the text, so we don't know for sure. And perhaps there was some of this. Uh, combined, though, perhaps more likely, scholars would suggest, with an explanation that the people were heavily involved in this church in what is known as the Roman patronage system. So it's an economic and a political system uh, that was uh, very common. It was, it was the way things were done. And the patron-client system was widespread in the society, and it went something like this. You know, people who really didn't want to work that hard, especially at manual labor, because, you know, the Greeks despised that, um, they would seek out a patron who might pay him, pay him to stop by and perform some service of honor. Maybe, especially if the person happened to be a citizen, they could give a speech on his behalf. Um, something to augment the social status of that patron. In other words, they want to get on the payroll of some family clan where they can provide some services, get a job here and there, you know, give, them, give gifts and honor back and forth, that kind of a thing. And these patrons are wealthy people. They're influential, powerful, and they would take pride in having a lot of people on their payroll. And so the clients might like this, too, because now they have access to these powerful people. They could protect them. They could help them. And they're really, though, they're being taken advantage of, and they're treated quite disrespectfully in the society at the time. So, anybody see any problems with this? Unreliable income is one problem, you know, because you're sort of begging for jobs to do, earn a little more money, asking for things, a dependency mindset comes in, because you're not supporting yourself, really, you're just sort of on the payroll for this guy. Poor view of work, poor view of self, think about the corruption level that could be involved in this kind of a system. In fact, think about the unseemly relationships that you find you would find yourself in as a Christian. 
and the allegiances that you might have to pledge. You know, it's really a dangerous situation. And so the Apostle Paul instructs them to make it their ambition to have no ambition, this kind of ambition. That is, in other words, lead a quiet life. Basically what he's saying is get a normal job. That's what he's saying. Get a normal job, live a normal life, be peaceful in the way you live. So the idea is to live orderly without sort of this restlessness and this this improper ambition to be involved with the powerful and the movers and the shakers. They're to calm down, to live an ordinary life, the life to which they were called. They're also to mind their own business, not meddling in other people's affairs or trying to live out the life of other people or hoping that they can live the life of someone else more rich and famous than themselves. They were to work, holding down a job, whatever it was. It's not looked down upon by people in general. They would be surprised. And it's actually not looked down upon by God, of course. The implication is that there's more honor in actually working than there is in being in the patronage system, even though it looks like to the world there's more honor there. So he wants them to get out of that. And so as a result of these, following these instructions, he's saying unbelievers are going to recognize that you have integrity, and they're not going to be repulsed uh, by you and, and your unseemly alliances. They'll see a good testimony and have respect for you, and, and, and that you're walking becomingly to your, to your calling in Jesus Christ and what you're saying and how you're telling people to follow this Jesus you follow. So then, in this way, everyone would achieve, you see, a sense of a, a respectable, self-sufficient independence, if you will not always looking to others to supply their needs. In fact, not even not looking to the church as if it's just another patron to meet your needs when you run into a shortfall. See, by working, they would gain self-respect and discipline and a certain, they would avoid these powerful, ungodly pressures in their lives. And best of all, they would have money left over that they could now use to help other people who are in need. They could contribute. That would bring even greater unity to the church. So let us excel still more in brotherly love. The apostle here is saying that Christians love their brothers and sisters by supporting those who are really truly in need. And Christians love their brothers and sisters by supporting themselves so as not to be in need themselves unnecessarily. Now, obviously, we don't live in this system. We don't live in this Roman patron-client structure of society. But we do live among politically and economically ambitious people that try to draw us into their world with their schemes and their systems. We do live in a culture that's obsessed with a leisure lifestyle and spending unwisely and beyond our means. Uh, It seems like the goal is to get to the point where you don't have anything to do anymore. We do work in employment situations where it's almost a badge of pride to get as little done as possible during the day. We live in a society that fosters an entitlement mentality. doesn't matter if you're poor, rich, or in between. Everyone seems like they're entitled to something these days. You see, each of these can work against the unity of the church and our love for one another and our faith. We can become too political and forget the true gospel, and we can lead people astray by our partisanship. We can become too recreation-oriented and find that all of our affections and our highest joys somehow reside in the wrong places. We can become overextended and withhold our giving and find ourselves in financial crisis. 
We can get used to doing very little to serve and help other people while expecting other people to help and serve us. So may we be just as holy in this area of work, in personal economics, in social politics, as we are in the area of sexuality. We need to excel still more. We really need to see one another as brothers and sisters that we really do constitute a new creation, a new spiritual family. So keep advancing in your walk with God, submitting to Jesus Christ, and ever increasing in your sanctification in the Holy Spirit. You know, we've discussed two very basic areas of life today, sex and work. Both of these appear at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. God created sex and work as He created us human beings, male and female. God blessed both of these natural endeavors and would bless through them. But as you know, the fall of man, sin and death entered the world, Humanity became corrupt, and so did our experiences of sex and work. They become corrupted. Every evil mutation has been emerging over the millennia ever since. And then also, as you know, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ was to put away sin by His cross. Redemption would come to us through those of us who believe, and the power of a new life in His resurrection. For those of us who are in Christ, not only have we experienced a personal new birth within ourselves that's a spiritual awakening, but we've experienced that in our work life, and we experience that in our marriages. They've been renewed and are constantly under renewal by the Holy Spirit. You see, redemption reclaims our work life and our relationships and brings them to great fulfillment. Would you like Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and renew your vision of work, renew your marriage? Well, put your faith in Jesus Christ and submit to the work of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul considers strong ethical instruction here part of basic discipleship for a new believer. Remember who he's talking to here. These are brand new Christians. You see, because he knows that they're more likely to obey right now as he instructs them rather than if he were to let them live their lives unchallenged and unencouraged. But you know, it's not uncommon today to do the opposite, fearing offending or losing our new converts. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why so many so-called Christians don't even live up to the bare standards of morality and are constantly asking questions about how to live as worldly as possible. Or it seems like there's so many then who have such little consideration for what actually pleases God, and they think they can just figure it out by sitting around and discussing their own ideas. Why is that the case? Because there's a lack of deep instruction. The Thessalonian church was young in faith, but they were eager to please God. That's what they wanted to do, and as a result, again, they were on the fast track to maturity, because once you set your mind to do that, God's going to do amazing things in your life. And it would lead so quickly to the Thessalonian church to be a church that Paul would boast about, so proud about what God has done in them. And he would encourage others to follow them. Again, Christian ethics are all about pleasing God. 
The concept of pleasing God is a very helpful concept, but it's also very challenging. But when you think about it in terms, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can talk about sanctification or ways to pursue holiness. The Scripture provides a lot of ways to talk about that. But this passage talks about pleasing God. That's a really wonderful way, I think, and a helpful way. It's, it's more helpful to talk about how can I please God than coming up with a list of rigid rules that somehow you're going to try to build a perfect Christian culture or a perfect family. It's so much more helpful, too, than I'm trying to live by just a few general moralizations on the other end. It's like, well, we just need to love. We just need to have faith without knowing really when and how passages of Scripture apply. You see, pleasing God is not about being reactionary to unbiblical standards that people can set up, but it's also not about self-righteously liking those things. Pleasing God, get this, implies that Christians can actually have their instincts trained by the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing. That comes from the book of Hebrews. You can read the book of Hebrews too. That's another book you can read. So the book of Hebrews, we can have our instincts trained. That's pretty cool when you think about it because you don't constantly have to be checking a list or you don't have to constantly be thinking about what other people are thinking or you don't constantly have to be scourging the Scriptures to see if there might be a Bible verse because your instincts are trained by the Holy Spirit. And it requires then spirituality, a deep spirituality to answer the question, how do I please God? How can I please God more? This concept calls us upward and onward in our Christian journey. And we know that we will not have arrived until we have arrived on that day. So we can and should excel still more in sexual purity and brotherly love. And there are certainly many more areas of our lives that we can excel in as Christians. But you know what? That's the rest of the New Testament. So you can go read the rest of the New Testament too. There's a lot there on how we can continue to walk faithfully before God. Now I know that you know, this passage today and the types of things that were said about the passage could be very a big burden to some people who might really be struggling. These are very intense topics. And it's my prayer that you'd find Jesus is all-sufficient because He provides forgiveness when you repent. He provides hope and He can powerfully heal your life, no matter where you come from, no matter how deep you're in. And the promise of restoration is powerful. Your life can be totally transformed. And in fact, just this Sunday, like we do every Sunday, there's always an opportunity after the worship service to just come up and pray with a few people. There'll be a few people up here appointed to pray with you. And if you'd like to pray with them about some of these things this morning, feel free to do that. It'll only take a few minutes. But you know, I hope that we're all greatly motivated by the pleasure of pleasing God. That's really the thing. It's a pleasure to please God, that we want to do that. And each of us, I'm sure, have items that the Holy Spirit has already put on our hearts this morning, things that we can pray about, things that we might want to work on, changes that perhaps we need to make in our life. Well, don't let those prompt things escape you. And be confident that you can succeed because it's not by your willpower you're going to get it done. If that were the case, you're in a sad state of affairs because our willpower will give out. It has its limits. But by the power and the grace of God in our life, because of our faith in Christ, because the Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians, we can be confident that we'll succeed, that God is going to produce holiness in our lives, because that's what He called us for, and He will do it. So let me pray for us. 
Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord God, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would conform us to the very image of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, and the perfect Holy One. We thank you and ask you to continually be urging us, to be prompting us, to be teaching us, to be guiding us, to be empowering us, to train our instincts and adjust our affections so that we can pursue holiness all the more. Father, we bless you for this calling that you've put upon our lives, this heavenly calling, this heavenly calling in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.